it's time for school days. Hope for moms and dads of school-aged kids. I tell parents, you're like a training wheel on a bike. Your job isn't to make the bike move. Your job is to keep the bike upright. Those of us who are the true educators, we really want to be given the opportunity to educate the whole child. We can get free college degrees based on all of the opportunities that are out here and available to our students. Oftentimes, as parents, I think we want to protect our kids, but I think one of the greatest gifts we can give them is allowing them to experience adversity. Yeah. Here's your host, Danita Bailey. Well, welcome to School Days, Help for Moms and Dads of School-Aged Kids. I'm Danita Bailey. On today's episode, I will speak with experts who work with children to overcome the challenges of dyslexia. (laughs) The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services estimates that 15% of the population has dyslexia. That equates to a staggering 43.5 million children and adults with dyslexia. It can impact students both academically and emotionally. With the right support, they can become equipped to overcome the challenges that dyslexia presents. Two-time Academy Award-winning actress Kira Knightley was diagnosed with dyslexia in elementary school and had this to say about the impact of dyslexia on her career and on her life. And, and so I think it's really important to say you're not stupid. Um, your brain simply works differently than other people and you can find different ways around it and you'll be good at other things. You may not be a brilliant speller, you may not be a very fast reader, but you will learn how to read and you will learn as much spelling as you need to, you know, Um, but you'll be better at different things. And I think that's unbelievably important to know as a kid. My spelling makes people laugh. It makes me laugh actually. And my reading, if I'm sight reading, oh, it's it's a complete joke. I mean, I'll make, it'll mean something else completely. It won't make any, any sense at all. Which, you know, for what I do for a living was quite difficult because if you give me a page of dialogue now, I can just about do it. But, but I mean, it jumps about and, you know, it takes me a while. I really need to learn it. I need to sit with it. I always have to say, you cannot give me a rewritten scene on the day and think that I'm going to be able to perform it well. If you give me a, re- a rewritten scene the day before and I have a night to work on it, I will be able to do it well. I think I was really lucky that it was diagnosed when I was six. So that early diagnosis was key to absolutely everything. Before we go any further, let me just say it does take a village. If you hear a great parenting tip or nugget of advice, share it with your parent friends. Facebook it, Instagram it, tweet it, link it in and add the hashtag school days show and hashtag I am school days. And also we want you to be a part of the show. If you have any questions or comments, give us a call at 214 444-5575. Or if you're live on Facebook with us right now, you can drop us a question there. Without further ado, let's let our kid casters introduce today's guests. This week, our kid casters are brother and sister Waddell and Alina Simon, who are fifth and second grade students from Arlington, Texas. And actually, these are the children of Alicia, who is one of our guests from last week's episode about time management and organization. Let's take a listen. Lenny Oxley attended Texas Tech University, where she received a bachelor's in elementary education, and Texas Christian University, where she received a master with special education and reading specialization. Her postgraduate work at Southern Methodist University earned her certification in language therapy and qualified instruction for the Certified Academic Language Therapist Program. Currently, Mrs. Oxley is a dyslexia lead teacher for the Mansfield Independent School District and executive director and founder of School of Lexia, a private practice for reading remediation as a reading specialization with 22 years experience working with students. Mrs. Oxley has helped hundreds of students who have dyslexia and other related disabilities. Welcome to School Dazed Miss Oxley. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> Samantha Echebellum is the coordinator for intervention services in Irving ISD. 
She works with teachers, interventionalists, administrators, and parents to support students who find learning difficult. In this role, she provides leadership for both the dyslexia and response to intervention departments. Additionally, she works as a reading and dyslexia specialist at Pro Learning in Arlington. This opportunity allows her to work directly with students to help them reach their full potential. Dr. Echebellum holds a PhD in educational leaderships with a minor in reading for the University of North Texas. Her research topics center around the prevalence and proportional of dyslexia in Texas public and charter school district. Through her research, she strives to ensure that all students are afforded the opportunity to have their educational needs met regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, direct attendance, district attendance, or geographical location. Samantha Echebellum, welcome to the School Day Show. (laughs) Well, welcome both of you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So let's just jump right in. Tell me what dyslexia is. So dyslexia is a neurobiological origin, meaning it is a networking in the brain that where the language areas of reading, writing, and spelling are affected. Mm-hmm. And how common is this disorder? Is, you know, the average m- number of kids maybe in a classroom? So the research really is, um, it varies. Um, you see some research um, on the conservative side saying about 10%. And then you'll see some that um, will even um, name as many as one in five. Um, So as much as 20% of a population. Wow. And what causes it? So it's, it's, it's brain networking. It's you are born with it. It's the way that your brain has been networked from origin. Um, and then the frequencies and the networking of how fast and processing um, that language area, reading, writing, and spelling. So nothing really causes it. It's genetic. Um, and you are born with it. Can you can you say what's happening in the brain? Is there something that's you know happening in a certain portion of the brain or not developed in the brain? So all the areas of the brain are developed, but the far the back the part of the brain that's kind of behind your ear um, is the main processing unit for the language area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the networking um, that has happening there in an average reader is it's just like an average reader. But a dyslexic reader, that area is, it's not necessarily undeveloped, but the the area that is connecting with the synapses in the brain is not networked in that area. They're having to use mostly the Broca's area, which is that frontal lobe area, where mostly speech is done. Um, and so that area is still networked to read, but it's a more slower analytic process. Um, that's why our dyslexics are slower readers. They don't quite read as fast. Um, but usually comprehension is not affected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one thing I, I do want to add that mm-hmm. I've heard as an analogy that I think is um, really great add on to that is is really to think about um, they're using inefficient portions of the brain. So instead of taking the most direct route, you know, they're going through detours and around the corner and up and down before they actually get to the final destination. So when you think about a student with dyslexia, they're not um, using the parts of the brain um, that are wired for language and and for reading Mm -hmm. um, the way that non-dyslexics are. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's why it does take longer for them to process the information to be able to decode and, and spell. Okay, that makes good sense. So what is what are they seeing when they're looking at text on a page? So dyslexia is not a visual difficulty at all. Mm-hmm. Um, some may say, you know, the letters or words move around. Well, that's not the case. It's really because their brain is working so hard and is overloaded in the decoding process that they get tired 
just like anyone who has stayed up for, you know, overnight for three or four hours and they pick up a book that that for any average reader, the words are going to look blurry or fuzzy because their, their brain is tired. It takes a dyslexic brain five times more energy to process the same information as an average reader. Mm, um, that's why they avoid reading. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so it's not a visual difficulty. They're not seeing things backwards, you know, before. Um that we used to think that, you know, they would do the B and D reversals. Um, that is not really an indicator. What's happening is that phonological memory in the brain that our brain is processed for is remembering the letters differently. Not okay. necessarily they're not seeing it differently. It's how their memory is recalling the shape and form of the letter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you said that this is something that you're born with. Is it always something that you're born with or is there anything that can cause the onset of it? No. So it's not really doing this is something that um, we often share with, um, you know, teachers and and parents as they're getting familiar and learning about dyslexia is that it's not really due to any type of traumatic injury um, or any cause um, or lack thereof in in development. It truly is something that that students are born with. They're they're just wired um, this way. That's right. Okay. How would I know if my child or if I am dyslexic? What am I going to see? So there are a number of different risk factors um, that, you know, one might look um, for. Um, We talked a little bit earlier about just avoidance. I mean, that, you know, is generally an indicator right there. But then there are more um, common things that you can be proactive with. Um, So difficulty learning the names of letters, difficulties um, remembering the sounds, um, holding on to the, the shape of the letter. We've mentioned that. Um, and in, even if in the early um, years, even before you're even thinking about um, actual teaching how to read, if you think back to um, you know the fun years of pre-K when you're doing all the rhyming and um, all those um, phonological awareness and playing with sounds, students with dyslexia, um, that is a, a huge um, challenge for them. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to see some difficulties early on. And so I wouldn't automatically say that um, you know a as soon as you start seeing, oh, they can't rhyme this word or that, that's cause for concern. Um, but certainly it's something that um, you should be mindful of and, you know, and be looking for some other characteristics. Absolutely. Um, and even, you know, when our children start to learn to how to speak, even um, a large majority of dyslexics are late to speak um, or mm-hmm. they have speech difficulties because of that language processing in the brain um, or they recall different words for others. They may say it's a tornado when really it's a volcano um, and just that vocabulary. Recall. I saw that exact mm-hmm. example yes. when I was reading. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, um, spaghetti is another one. <clears throat> yeah. Where, where it's cute to say paschetti, you uh-huh. know, and it's real cute when they're like, oh, I want some paschetti when they're, you know, two and three. And then you look up and, you know, they're five and six and seven and they're still and they're saying, saying paschetti. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But hmm. it's that phonological processing that's um, that's weaker in the brain, um, that ability to rhyme, that ability to um say beginning sounds and then uh, recognize those beginning sounds um, as those are fundamentals in um, early speech. And so when those networkings aren't working appropriately, then then you have some dif- difficulties. Hmm. And all, all of those bleed into reading, writing, and spelling. Um, and so at the elementary age, um, students are usually later to read. They may have difficulties um, with spelling. Um, they may do great on the, the spelling test, but their writing journals still struggle because that's their free writing process that they're coming through. Um, and then writing written expression may be weaker. Um, and sometimes even students struggle with the memory because of phonological memory, uh, the memory of mul- uh, multiplication facts mm-hmm. and math hmm. facts. And of course, that bleeds into the word problems that, you know, we're, word problems start around second grade now. And it's oh, just, it's crazy. <laughs> What is the reason why they have memory issues? Well, it's not really memory issues. It's the way that the networking is um, with that language area and that phonological memory holds a lot of words that average readers just collect along the way just by introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because that networking is different and they're trying to hold that information in the Broca's area, the frontal lobe, it's not... You can't hold memory there. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, okay. it, and it's also, too, the retrieval. So it, it's it's there. They just need something to kind of anchor it to help pull it out. Okay. Um, so it, when we say memory, it, it like I said, it's not necessarily like they 
they don't remember it as when you think about memory, it's more about um, being able to access it and retrieve it from the brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have that problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think what, it's because I'm 44, though. <laughs> you know, I was going to also add, too, we've, we've talked a lot about like some of the early indicators when you're thinking of an elementary student or, or just um, early signs. Right. But we still have these um, students who could very well be in um, a secondary student or even older mm-hmm. um, that may not have exhibited um, some of these characteristics um, so profoundly. Um, but those are students that we still want to pay attention to. Um, so we do have what we also call these twice exceptional students, mm-hmm. meaning that they're gifted, but they also have this learning disability dyslexia. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when it comes to some of the early indicators that we've mentioned, you know, they may just look average or, you know, you know, they're not, they had difficulties, but it wasn't, you know, extreme or significant um, when you kind of think back. But these are some students that we also want to be mindful of, too, that even if they don't get that identification in elementary school, they may still have dyslexia that, you know, is starting to really, um, you know, really show some more um, evident signs later on. Mm-hmm. You know, when the, the the complexity of the text increases, the demands of the workload increases, mm-hmm. um, things become a little bit more apparent. I read an article about um, by a mom who had two children with dyslexia and it wasn't identified until they were I think both in high school Mm -hmm. and she really noticed it with her son and I I don't know exactly what happened but he got tested and her daughter was like mom I need to be tested too and she was like you're a great student I don't know what you're talking Mm -hmm. about they tend they ended up both having the same level or severeness of dyslexia even though she was the one who was um, very bright and Mm -hmm. and a high achiever but she still had dyslexia and she had been suffering and struggling and she didn't her her mom didn't realize it yeah I love the phrase at what cost right so you think of these students um, I would imagine um, this particular student I I imagine that she was probably um, a high excelling student um, but then you start thinking at what cost at what cost Mm -hmm. does it take for her um, to perform and achieve at these high levels, what is it? Right. What is she doing in the evenings? Um, you know, to be able to just even maintain. How long is it taking to do homework? Mm-hmm. You know, those types of things. Oh, yeah. And she thinks that it's normal because that's, that's been just her the norm. Way it's, mm-hmm. it's been her norm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so happy. Yes. <laughs> this person who I don't know, I'm so happy she got <laughs> right, diagnosed right? because that's a very yes. good point. You're putting in way more effort than everybody mm-hmm. else or than, you know, right. kids, peers your age. And it's not it's unnecessary. Oh, she must feel so much yeah. better now. Well, even my husband at 45, he's, you know, he's self-diagnosed with dyslexia and um, and he's and he looks back on his childhood and he was like, you know, I was in the average to below average reading group. Um, and, but I was always really, really good in math. And then they identified me as GT. So all of a sudden they said, well, he doesn't need to be in the below average reading group. We're going to bump him up and make push him and excel him. Mm. And so because of his giftedness in the math and sciences area, they had these expectations of him. And so he was one to meet the expectations. His hard work ethic bumped up. He His expectations were made. Um, he was surrounded by people that were supporting him. Now, when he got home, homework took longer. Um, he needed the extra time. Um, but because of those expectations and because the schools had identified his giftedness, he was able to thrive and be successful. Um, but today, even today, he has all his emails read to him. Any any book he gets on audio, um, all the notes. You know, he does text to speech. He doesn't even like text his friends. He does the speech text mm-hmm. thing. You know, says oh, Siri. My husband does that too. <laughs> it's easier sometimes. Yes. <laughs> so Kira talked about um, Kira Knightley, the actress. She talked about not wanting kids to feel like they're stupid. So is dyslexia in it in any way linked to intelligence? Not at all. Um, dyslexics tend to have average to above average intelligence, thus, you know, giving them a giftedness in, in other areas. Um, and it, it, it breaks my heart because I think students feel that way because the minute, even preschool um, nowadays, um, the minute you enter to school, you have given this expectation of, of reading. Not necessarily mm-hmm. math facts in the beginning, but reading. You have to read and you have to read before you exit this grade. Um, and so students who have dyslexia, they, they struggle and they're weaker in that area. So therefore, if they are setting that expectation for themselves and comparing themselves to their peers or and parents are comparing them to siblings, you should be doing this. Why aren't you right. doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more of the um, onset of personal um, you know, why, why am I not doing this? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I showed a video to a student one day um, when they were just diagnosed, um, and he was a sixth grade big boy. And I and I showed him this video of, you know, what this is what dyslexia is. This is what you have, and this is these are the great things about having dyslexia. Um, so I watched, let him watch the video quietly, and then I turned off the video, and I was like, so so what are your thoughts? And he was like, oh my goodness. I was like, what? He's like, I always thought that when the Lord passed out smartness, I was last in line. Mm. I know. So, and that's just because that expectation that we're putting, you know, uh, and it's, we all have to learn to read. But in the 20s, you didn't have to, you know, you learned that was reading, learning to read was extra. Your skills were differently. Um, you had more of a hard labor. Um, nowadays, that's the, the roles have changed in society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell me how dyslexics fare socially and emotionally. I know that this can be very difficult, sometimes embarrassing. How does that, how, how do they, you know, Kira talked about feeling stupid. How do they get through that? I think that's a loaded question because I think that you've got so many different personalities and there's just not one mold when it comes to students with dyslexia. Um, So I I can think of um, specific students that are on both extremes. So Mm -hmm. you have some that will um, kind of be the the funny one and the jokester Mm -hmm. um, to kind of mask some of their difficulties. Um, but then you have the others who are more, um, as long as the teacher just doesn't call on me, um, you know, I can just fly under the radar. I'm not noticed. Um, so I, I think that there can be two extremes and then everything in between, um, when it comes to, to students with dyslexia. Mm -hmm. But I do think that that's an area that we as educators can do a better job at. Um, when we think about just social, emotional, even just learning, that's such a buzzword right now in education. But I think one thing that we can do a better job is really honing in on how we can better support students with learning difficulties Mm -hmm. um, and really supporting their social emotional needs beyond just the academic needs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would agree a hundred percent. I mean, everyone is so different. Um, You know, we have introverts and extroverts. Introverts are going to approach problems differently from an extrovert. Um, And that's how, you know, we need to look at our students, all students with learning disabilities. They're going to approach it different ways. Um, It's just the environments that we are, you know, promoting. Is this going to be a positive environment um, in, or is this an environment going to fit the needs of this, you know, introverted dyslexic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can remember, oops, I can remember growing up hating to read out loud. I was not very good at it. I'm still not awesome at it, which is funny because I have to do a lot of that here. <laughs> but I mean, uh, weeks ago, I had to read it in front of the church and it made me really nervous, not just getting up on stage because I actually am on stage enough because I, I, I'm on the worship team, but I was, had to do something in a different role, had to read. And I was thinking it kind of brought me back to being a kid <laughs> mm-hmm. and those uh, feelings of anxiety having to read in front of people. So I can just imagine the um, the difficulty, though, that kids with dyslexia have and being put on the spot and things like that. We talked a little bit about um, little kids and the signs that we see there. Is reversal of letters anything to be concerned about? Because, you know, I see my, my daughter do that. All of my kids have done that. Is that a sign in any way? I think it depends on the age, right? Because if you're thinking, um, you know, they're reversing letters you know, and they're in kindergarten and they're, you know, learning letter formation and shape and such. I think that's just developmental. Um, but if it's a reoccurring thing, I, I think that's just something to make note of. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when it comes to the characteristics, there's not just one single characteristic that you're like, yes, this is it. You know, I need to get my child evaluated. Um, but it's really just um, all things, you know, in combination and kind of put together um, that would support the need for an evaluation um, but I think certainly if we're still talking letter reversals and we're talking a fourth grader, mm-hmm. um, that's certainly cause for concern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would also just say there's something about that mama gut mm-hmm. that, that you should listen to. <laughs> Absolutely. Guys have it too. I don't mean to leave them out, but there is just something about that mama instinct that you're like, mm, there's something not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and along that vein, um, how is specific learning dis- area, uh, disability in the area of basic reading and fluency different from dyslexia. My child, I said that because um, my middle child, who's now nine, when he was six, I feel like he was um, diagnosed with specific learning disability in the area of reading. Um, That ended up not being what was wrong with him. (laughs) But so how is that different from dyslexia? 
Well, <laughs> they could, could be. They could. It could be dyslexia because 85% of students who have been identified as a specific learning disability in reading are actually dyslexic. How? What percentage? 85%. 85%. Okay. Um, and so that's a large percentage of our learning disability students that have um, reading dis- difficulties. If the student is a ha- having a difficulty and was identified with a LD in the areas of word attack, um, decoding, um, or even encoding, which is the spelling portion, um, then it could possibly be the dyslexia. Now, if the LD is coming from short-term, long-term memory, where they're just not able, they have the phonics skills, but they're not able to hold that memory, then that's that's something different. Um but yes, there is a large portion. And the end, for me, it's more identifying the student um, with, the, with the LD, not specifically, but then giving them the interventions mm-hmm. that that individual student needs. Mm-hmm. So this 85%, that's a lot of students that could possibly have dyslexia. Mm-hmm. But the question is, okay, so if, if they don't, are we still providing the interventions they need? Are they still getting, if it says they're, if their data says they're weak in the phonics area, are they receiving the phonics intervention? Um, because that's that will be the area that you're targeting to help that student. And what is specific learning disorder, a dis- disability in the area of reading? Does it just mean you don't read well? It's, it's a broader um, term of, to say that you have a reading disability. Several years ago, the Office of Civil Rights actually put out um, a dear colleague letter that um, spoke directly to evaluators and educators um, in the field that says that if a student has dyslexia, we need to be naming dyslexia and not this broad umbrella. Um, because what that means is um, students aren't appropriately serviced. Yes. So if I don't name dyslexia, I, I very well may not get a dyslexia intervention. And we want to make sure that we're really giving students the right intervention for their need. We don't want some general reading intervention if we know that they have dyslexia. And when it comes to dyslexia, there are very specific um, therapies and interventions um, that we know um, work well for those students. Mm -hmm. Um, So we want to be very careful with um, the terminology that we use in the field. um, We generally know that, you know, we can kind of interchange some of them and we can look through an evaluation and kind of, you know, make a judgment. And even though they didn't name it, we can see it. But just generally speaking, and and for parents and for educators who are not um, uh, well versed in dyslexia, we really ought to be naming um, the, the disability for what it is so that we can ensure that students get what they need. That's so good. So we know a lot of these disabilities coexist together. Um, I've seen that ADHD um, coexist with dyslexia um, a lot. Why does why is that the case? So um, Florida State University and some other universities in Britain across seas, they have recently done research on ADHD and seen a connection um, with phonological memory. And we've already talked about already that dyslexics have a difficulty with that phonological memory. And so that is one area where they they are finding recent, recent research how the two um, can, can coexist. Um, also, too, students who have dyslexia, they don't want to read. They don't. They struggle with that reading, and so sometimes they look as if they have ADHD mm-hmm. because they are trying to escape mm-hmm. the reading um, difficulties that they're having by acting out or being obstinate or you know are just just trying to literally escape. And I've seen just the opposite as well, where um, an evaluation team won't name dyslexia because they feel like it's attributed to, or their difficulties can be um, attributed to ADHD when we know they're co- they can be comorbid. Um, a student can have mm-hmm. both dyslexia and ADHD. Um, so we really have to um, really look at both areas um, when we're seeing some um, concern um, that could be ADHD and it could be dyslexia or it could be both. Um, but I don't think that we can rule out dyslexia just because a student has ADHD, um, you know, and they're exhibiting some difficulties in that area. So how is this diagnosed? So different, um, the main things that they're going to be looking for um, is, is there a discrepancy among what a student is able to learn and what they are showing in that reading, writing, and spelling areas. Um, and so if a parent is like, oh, I really think my child needs to be um, assessed, they need to contact their district um, and request testing. Every parent has that right at any time um, to request that um 
testing and then they will see that testing will be forwarded to either to a diagnostician or a dyslexia therapist who is trained in giving assessments within the district within the district um and even um you know Students who are homeschooled or attend private schools, they can seek um, testing through the district because they are taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Um, That's so good to know. Yes. Um, and so that through that, the district will assess um, and they will you know, look at discrepancies among listening comprehension and vocabulary, which is normal, is usually high for dyslexic. And if the discrepancy is lower in that reading, writing and spelling um, components um, and different assessments are used in different districts. Um, but the key things that we're looking for is that weak area and reading, writing and spelling decoding mostly word attack skills. When would you recommend this may be kind of a loaded question too, um, getting your own diagnosis, getting a separate di- diagnosis outside of the school, district? outside of the school district. Um, so I think we talked about like the the motherly instincts, uh-huh. right? So I think that there's um, some some different scenarios. So let's say the school um, is refusing to test, but you as a mother or as a parent, um, you know, you're you're pretty adamant that, you know, there is some something going on. Um, you know, you might seek outside or private evaluations at that time. Um, perhaps maybe if you're in a school district or in an area um, that isn't as um, well versed in dyslexia. And so the evaluation that was um, conducted may not have been as thorough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might seek outside evaluations um, as well. Um, but I do caution those that seek outside um, evaluations to make sure that they're going to someone who's not only a professional and credible, um, but that also um, has experience um, in an area of expertise in dyslexia. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes we have parents who want to go to their pediatricians. Um, and, you know, pediatricians are great. Um, but, you know, when we think of dyslexia, um, we really think of it as more of an educational need um, rather than a medical need. And so you want to make sure that you're going to someone who has that credibility in that expertise, you know, when it comes to dyslexia. Absolutely. Yeah. And it also also should be noted that if you get a private diagnosis, it may not be accepted at the school. Correct. Um, and they may insist on doing their own diagnosis. That's at least what happened to yes. us. Yes. Yeah. Are most teachers qualified, in your opinion, to see the signs? Are they trained to see the signs? I, I would say we're we're in a much better place now yes. than maybe we were even five years ago. Um, you know, here in Texas, we have um, some state laws that have been put in place um, that require, you know, even pre-service teachers when they're going through um, their undergraduate work to even become a teacher. Um, they're now required to have um, certain you know, opportunities for professional development and professional learning in the area of dyslexia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as school districts, um, we have an obligation to make sure that our um, teachers um, also receive, you know, training in the area of dyslexia. One thing that I always, um, you know, communicate very loud and clear in my district is, you know, the teachers are the ones that see these students day in and day out. Um, so they're the ones on the front line that really ought to be well-versed um, and know what they're looking for. Um, so absolutely, classroom teachers should be trained. I think there's where um, there's still opportunities across the state, across the country, um, for us to further develop classroom teachers and just all educators when it comes to dyslexia, just because of how prevalent it is. Um, but I, I certainly think we've come a long way. Mm-hmm. I would totally agree. Um, the state of Texas has come so far in the past five to 10 years. Um, and one of those things that they have done is implemented the K-1 screener, meaning every kindergarten and first grade student in the whole state of Texas has to be screened for a reading difficulty, specifically dyslexia. Hmm. And so the districts get to choose at this point. That's going to about to, be, about to change. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, they choose their primary assessments and then they record it and report it to um, the PEAMS clerk and um, all that information is sent to the state. So the state can also help collect data and research and so we can target our dyslexic students more efficiently. Are these tests pretty accurate? Uh, Can kids slide? Well, this is our first year for having, um, it's like in our third year for having to have the K-1 screener, but this is the first year where it's been outlined um, with 
very clear criteria in the handbook. Um, and so as it stands, there's not any commercially available screeners that are um, developed specifically for this need. We have some reading universal screeners um, that we can kind of, um, kind of, um, I guess, fine tune some of the areas that we know that um, students with dyslexia, um, some of the characteristics they might exhibit. And so those are what um, districts across the state are using, um, you know, to screen students. So it's going to be kind of too early to tell what's going to be the outcome of those mm -hmm. um, screeners. Um, first grade has to be completed by January 31st. Um, so we're still in very early stages of that in kindergarten by the end of the year. Um, but I, I, I imagine even kind of thinking about reflecting on our own, my own school district, um, that we're certainly going to get much clearer information and, and, and do a better job of being proactive for these students who have experienced reading difficulties than we have in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. And with the RTI system um, that almost all around the all around all around the world that the response to intervention um, that a lot of states are implementing um, that's part of the K1 screener so when a child is has some identities kind of flagged the specialists on that campus will identify the student specifically which needs are weaker and they'll automatically provide interventions now if those interventions after a 6 to 9 week period don't seem to be assisting the student at the progress they would like to see, then they usually um, move forward with more identification with a specific learning disability or dyslexia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So response to intervention, um, I know a little bit about this because we, we experience this ourselves. So it is things that the teacher them, the teachers themselves can do in the classroom before we move forward with having to have an ARD and a 504 or an IEP and all of those things, things that they do prior to um, putting an actual plan into place. Mm -hmm. Right. How early can dyslexia be diagnosed? We talked about um, it can. So is it just going to be K through through it, kindergarten is the earliest that it can be diagnosed or can we see signs even in pre-K? I think we can see why well, know we can see signs and characteristics, um, but I think it's going to be difficult to give someone an identification before they've had that educational opportunity um, to learn to read, because that's some of the the major factors um, that we look at. So when, when we talk about an evaluation, it's not just the actual assessment or the test themselves. That's only a part of the evaluation. We also want to look at um, what we call the, the qualitative data. So how are they, um, you know, their in-class performance? What is the, the homework amount um, time spent? Um, so we were able to really paint a picture of the entire student. And we're really not able to get that full picture when we're talking a, a, a very young Student, I think that we have enough um, research and enough information um, to, to notice some of the signs early on and start some early intervention. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't delay intervention if we're starting to, to notice some signs. But I think to get um, a formal identification, um, it would be very difficult to do so before um, at least mid-kinder. Okay. Yeah, and it takes a village. Um, you know, it, it, when, when teachers start noticing these difficulties, they need to contact the parents because the parents may have valuable information like, such as, oh, my child never went to preschool as opposed to my child was at preschool every day, five mm -hmm. days a week at this private school that we paid lots of money for, mm -hmm. you know. And so that, that background that they're coming to kindergarten makes a huge difference too um, in their reading progress and what – what kind of weaknesses we're going to see through that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me ask, are, do boys and girls start reading um, fluently, I guess, at different ages? Because one of the things I was told when my son was diagnosed with specific learning disorder in the area of reading, um, when we went to the next, or when we actually got him diagnosed privately, she said that he was really too young. She would never have given him that that diagnosis at the age he was. So because she said boys tend to kind of develop a little later, and they kind of all of a sudden learn and like, that's you know, actually what happened to him. I don't know that you'll find any empirical research um, to support that. that. Those might be some anecdotal. Yeah, yeah. Or some, you know, some experiences, um, you know, that, that he or she may have, um, you know, noted along the way, but I don't know that you'll find um, just enough mm -hmm. research to support that claim. Mm -hmm. So how is dyslexia different in adults? You know, we talked about how you can, 
possibly move into adulthood and not have been diagnosed mm -hmm. um, with dyslexia because you're kind of have functioning, you know? Mm -hmm. So what does it look like if you're an adult? So it is a little bit different. Um, and But you're not going to – an adult usually doesn't recognize it because uh, through their whole life, they are born with this mm -hmm. disability. And through their whole life, they've created their own personal compensation strategies. So that by the time they get to their into their adult years and they are in their craft, like their job, their employment is usually what they are thriving yeah. in, what they're gifted in. Their wheelhouse. Their strength, <laughs> yes. So those are not they're they're going so far forward that they're not going to be really having major difficulties. However, if it does take um, an adult a little bit longer to you know read their emails or to um, process new information um, or an extended time to to do a project that their peer might be doing in half the time, then those might be indicators. But it's definitely not making them less of a worker or um, more you know less of any any successfulness mm -hmm. yeah actually there was a study conducted by the cast business school in london found that 35 percent of entrepreneurs are dyslexic mm -hmm. and dyslexics were more likely to more likely than non-dyslexics to delegate authority to excel in oral communication and problem solving mm -hmm. so they're 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 working well but they're probably having a, a more difficult time working than they should be. Yeah. Like let we me, talked about with the Let me girl. just add on to that. So like in 2015, um, there was research done and, and that, you know, of course, that's a couple of years ago. But 35 percent of all entrepreneurs have dyslexia. 40 percent of all dyslexics are self-made millionaires. Wow. Yes. 50 percent of NASA rocket scientists have dyslexia. Wow. Yes. And MIT, they call it the, you know, the, do they call it the, um, the MIT disease is <laughs> dyslexia. Yes. So these, you know, individuals, they start off school defeated because they are comparing themselves with what they should be. But when they get, when they graduate and they are in their craft, they excel and they're more successful than I could even dream of being. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know, and I think that kind of goes back to our earlier conversation, too, about supporting some of these social and emotional needs, mm -hmm. um, because I think about these um, entrepreneurs and I think about some of these millionaires. Um, but if they're not um, nourished along the mm -hmm. way, um, I think that some of them, you know, may not even be able to reach their full potential. Oh, gosh. Yes. They could be doing even and better. Along what she's saying, 35% of dyslexics drop out of high school. 35%. Oh. Oh. 50% of all adolescents involved are involved in drug and alcohol rehabilitation with dys have dyslexia. And 60 to 70% of all juvenile delinquents have dyslexia. Oh. Yes. And this is so that exactly what you're doing as educators, we need to be fostering and parents too. We need to be advocates for our children because it is about which direction are we going to, to focus on the weaknesses? Are we going to focus on the strengths mm -hmm. and let our children grow into them um, and just become who they're meant to be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, oh, I, you know what? I keep trying to do this and I'm getting into this conversation. So I keep forgetting <laughs> <laughs> to say that if you have any questions or comments for our guests, uh, give us a call at 214-444-5575. Tell me, so dyslexia does not have a quote cure. Why doesn't it go away with proper learning instruction? I mean, it's just really how the brain is wired. Um, so we have, you know, dyslexia therapy that's going to help, um, you know, make those connections for students and help them anchor on um, for their learning. Um, but unfortunately, like you said, there there's no cure for it. Um, we can just teach students how to, one, advocate for themselves and advocate for their needs. Um, we can remediate them as best that, you know, that we can. Um, and then, of course, we can continue to support them. Um, so that they're they they do uh, so that they are able to really reach um, their potential, um, but when it comes to a cure, there's there's not really one for it. It's it's their learning difference. Yeah, it's who they are. Yeah, what kind of classroom environment is best for them? So just like we talked about earlier, the introverts and the extroverts, there's so many differences. You mm -hmm. know, um, I ideally we would like for all of our students to be, you know, in a structured, scheduled classroom um, that offers different opportunities at different times. Um, as far as intervention, um, that looks different. 
So the classroom um, um, environment can be a little bit different from the intervention environment. Intervention um, is the specific instruction that a dyslexic student needs, that Orton-Gillingham approach um, that has a systematic way of teaching um, all phonemes and graphemes, simply phonics. Um, and that needs to be a very structured, quiet, scheduled classroom. Um, and then, um, like I said, different students um, Accommodate are needed at different accommodations within the classroom to make their classroom, you know, meet their needs. Mm -hmm. So, how do you actually get these accommodations in school? What what's the what's the first steps and what what's the process of doing that? So, to get an evaluation, uh, or excuse me, an accommodation, a student is going to need to be um, formally identified. Um, so that means that they've um, had an evaluation. Um, in the state of Texas, that can be through 504 or through special education. Outside of Texas, um, that's really only going to be through special education. Um, Texas is one of the few, if not the only, that allows for um, identification of dyslexia through 504. Um, so without either one, um, a student won't be able to get accommodations. Talk about the difference between a 504 and an IEP. So both of them, so Section 504 um, and special education are both um, kind of just the larger umbrella um, that provides um, protections for students. So Section 504 um, is a, provides legal protection, not just for students with dyslexia, um, but for students with um, some type of disability. So whether that's a mental disability or physical disability, it provides some type of um, protection to really be able to level the playing field with their non-disabled peers. Um, whereas special education, um, although similar and it provides similar um, protections, um, it allows for students to have specially designed instruction. So for a student to um, be serviced through special education in Texas rather than 504, what we're saying is that this student requires um, specially designed instruction that's above and beyond um, what's afforded through Section 504. So these might be students who um, have a little bit more um, a little bit more complex needs, whether that's learning needs um, or even um, just other needs um, that would need to be serviced through special education. So although similar and um, and they both afford similar um, accommodations and um, protections for the students, um, they do have some unique differences. So is the difference then that with an IEP, you have a change in curriculum Possibly versus a 504 is, you know, you've got some sort of accommodations like you sit closer yeah. to the teacher. So, so what you're um, referring to is the difference between an accommodation and a modification. So mm -hmm. under uh, Section 504, you're um, only going to be able to get an accommodation. And for most students, that's generally, generally um, enough to meet their needs. If we're at a point where we need to start modifying the curriculum, that would be a student who would be best serviced through special Especially. education. Okay, mm -hmm. gotcha. Um. So what kind of accommodations are provided or can be provided? And I know it's different for every child, but what are some of the things that I might want to, because preparing for the ARD, and that's the the meeting that you go to that where the vice principal is going to be and the diagnostician and the child's teacher, it can be kind of um, um, daunting. Daunting. <laughs> um, I know the first ARD that I went to, I didn't even know what an ARD was. My mm -hmm. child was in kindergarten, so I was clueless. And um, I didn't even know to be prepared. Um, in subsequent ARDs, I've been very prepared. But so what are some things that I would want to go to the table with um, at an ARD? Um, to be prepared for my child. What are some accommodations that are available? So with the invitation to the ARD, usually there is a little bit of information about what's the meeting's going to be about, what the child, what we've seen with the child. Um, and so just be, you know, very aware of what those, um, that paperwork says. Um, and then also know your child and recall so conversations um, that you've had with your child that your teacher, your son's, your son or daughter's teacher has told you and also prior teachers. Um, Cause we're not just working within this classroom. We're work looking behind to, to see what has benefited the child in the long run. Um, a lot of the most frequent accommodations for our dyslexic students are oral administration, meaning that they can have um, test questions and answers read to them aloud, um, or par partial word choices or fragments read aloud to them as well. 
um, extended time, time to process that information, time to read the passages. Um, because with standardized tests, the students are supposed to read the passage on their own, but they can have the questions and answers read to them. Mm -hmm. So they need that extra time to decode, read that whole long passage, and then process that information before they um, attempt to go to the questions. Um, also, too, that's, you know, in our other academic areas, they need that extra time to process through those word problems or through the text to understand what the content is telling them. Um, also, I usually do no count for spelling. Um, spelling assistance is great, but that differs from grade level to grade le level and then from campus to campus. So if we just do no count um, for spelling errors, then that takes them from the very beginning through the end. Um, and then sometimes it just depends on the student writing assistance, um, but the very for very severe dyslexics, accommodations might need to be like speech to text information. Um, they have great apps for your phone now, um, not for just spell check, but just also to speech to text apps um, to help them with writing assignments um, or presentations. Um, but those are the most frequent accommodations. There are more and more that you can see on your um, state website. Um, they have allowable accommodations there for Texas. It's the Texas Education Agency. If you just go on TEA, you can um, ask for accommodations, allow allowable accommodations, and they will be written there for you. Also, too, um, she had already mentioned our um, dyslexia handbook. So every state has adopted some kind of form of handbook, um, and our state has adopted Dyslexia Handbook, and it is also found on the TA website. If you just go um, to TA, um, I'm not even sure the full website. I, I laugh at myself when I say yes. Google as a verb. Just right? Google. Yes. <laughs> yes. We all do that. Yes. Um, but the TA website, and if you just put in the search engine Dyslexia Handbook, it'll pop up, and that is a wealth of information for parents. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was going to also add, too, um, when it comes to these 504 and ARD meetings, one thing that I think parents should be reminded of is that this is a, a legal meeting. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you're forming that documentation, this is what um, the school district will be bound to. Um, so I think that in preparation, they should have questions um, that they, you know, are thinking about or may have. Have them written out so that, um, yes. you know, they have that opportunity because the 504 and ARD um, meetings are, are made up of the classroom teacher. It's made up of the diagnostician or the campus administrator and the counselors. So a, a team of experts um, that, you know, will be able to address, you know, the concern or the question that a parent have. So I think absolutely, it's kind of like when you're thinking about going to the pediatrician for, you know, your newborn and they tell you to write out those questions to mm -hmm. ask when you're there. It's a similar <laughs> concept. So, you know, what are some of the questions that you might have? And then I also think too, um, that they should kind of already be thinking about what are some of the accommodations um, that the student might benefit from. So maybe right. um, there are some things that maybe the student has communicated at home um, that maybe the student doesn't feel comfortable communicating with the teacher or the school um, so that, you know, depending on the age, they can help advocate for their child. Um, you know, and it really shouldn't just be a laundry list of, oh, this sounds good. This sounds nice. But it really should be very specific to the needs um, of the student. Um, and I think that um, as long as the parent is able to articulate um, that need, the committee um, generally is is very um you know, willing to include that accommodation. So this really isn't the opportunity to have that car ride home after the meeting and say, oh, I wish I would have. Right. right. Because then, you know, the document is is kind of, I don't want to say it's set in, set in stone because we can always go back and have another one. Um, but it's just much easier to have all the players at the table and have those conversations um, when we're in the formal um, 504 and ARD. Yeah. Uh, I should mention, we did do a show about obtaining services and accommodations for your child back in January of last Last year. Mm -hmm. So if you want um, any, if you have any questions or want to know more about that whole system, go back and listen to that episode. It's called the one about obtaining services and accommodations. <laughs> um, but you should also know that you don't have to sign on the dotted line. They're going to have you, you know, they're going to read all the stuff and say, okay, do you agree with this? If there's something that you don't agree with, you don't have to sign. Um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is if you are working with, if someone is working with your child outside, like I had a friend that was working with my son, he's autistic and um, she conferenced into the meeting because I really felt like I needed someone to be there who had more information than I did and who knew my child. Cause she's known him since birth mm -hmm. and um, could just, you know, 
offer more assistance to me. So they will allow you to do that, at least in my mm-hmm. district they did. They but, do, and I yeah. think that allows for um, a real team approach when it yes. comes to, to the needs. So it's not just, you know, we're the school and we know it all, or you're the parent and you know it all, but working together to really make sure that we're supporting the student. Yeah, absolutely. And involve your child in these conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, let them know, hey, we're going to meet with your teachers today. We're going to see how we can help you more in the classroom. What are some things you really struggle with in the classroom? Um, Because listening to your child, um, you might find things that you didn't realize, you know, were needed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a lot about accommodations. What are some of the reading programs? You know, you talked about they can be pulled out for different things. What are some of the things that you guys use to help these students? So generally, it's going to be an Orton-Gillingham therapy or or remediation program. Um, So that's one thing that um, I think parents need to be aware of. Um, So when they have an identification of dyslexia, they want to make sure that their student is going to be in the right um, curriculum or program, if you will, not just a general reading program or um, a reading program that addresses um, a certain component that doesn't for example, comprehension, right? For students with dyslexia, that's not the best remediation. There may be some who need some additional support with comprehension, but when we talk about a dyslexia remediation program, we're talking about one that's some structured literacy program that has um, an Orton-Gillingham approach to it. Um, And so there are a a number of different curriculums, um, you know, that we can rattle off. um, But I think the, the, the bigger issue is that whatever the district is using, that they conduct their research just to to make sure that it is, in fact, um, one that is an Orton-Gillingham approached um, program. Um, And then also, we have in the state of Texas the handbook that we've mentioned, and it outlines the criteria that should be inside of um, each and every one of our programs um, that as school districts we're bound to. Um, So that would be another thing is to ask some of those questions um, in the ART and in the 504. Mm -hmm. Um, So what type of remediation program will, um, you know, my student be a part of? Can you tell me a little bit more about it? Does it meet the criteria of the handbook? Um, And so for a school district that's in compliance of the handbook um, in the state of Texas, they should be able to, to answer those questions um, very easily. And if they're outside of um, the state of Texas, our handbook, I think, is still very comprehensive enough um, that they won't, other school districts outside of Texas are not bound to the same law, but the, the information, I think, is still very relevant. Mm-hmm. What can I do to help my child at home? Are there ways that I can best support my child that's dyslexic? So, you know, just being their advocate is, you know, primary and teaching them how to be their own advocate, I think is, you know, very That's primary. So yes, because, you know, they're, they need to get speak up in front of the classroom and, and the teachers and in a respectful way. And I don't understand this. How can I get more assistance with this? Um, also to patience, you know, what, what make a, a an average reader have 30 minutes of homework can be three hours for mm-hmm. a dyslexic and don't expect them to finish it all in one night. Like I, I'm guilty of that. You get the assignment, you get it done, but no, a dyslexic needs it compartmentalized when you do 20 minutes yeah. Monday night, 20 minutes Tuesday night until it is completed. Um, just giving that time and then giving them the breaks during that time of, of homework time so they can get up and just recheck their brain, reset it um, so they can come back and focus and, um, you know, do their, the word attack that is so difficult for them. Mm-hmm. And what is word attack? You've said that a couple of times and I kept meaning, meaning to ask you. No, you're fine. So, okay. So when the phonological awareness, the processing, the rhyming, the initial sounds, the medial sounds, the final sounds that we talked about in those preschool years, they're, when they're being formed, well, that's a deficit that is seen in dyslexic students. Those sound, the sounds that those sounds make to uh, the correlation to the symbol, so the A with the letter A, that relationship together um, is is based off that phonological processing foundation. So then when you're adding those symbols together to form words, that is the word attack. Using those sound symbol relationships in the form of a word to attack that word and how they are reading it. Um, and it really is literally word attack for our dyslexic students. Mm-hmm. Um, it might also be hard as you know decoding the words as another word that we say for for that word those word attack skills. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there any technology that um, can be used at home? Some apps, maybe on your phone or something on the computer that uh, you guys recommend. 
I think one thing that we haven't mentioned that I think um, certainly is worth the mention is the use of audiobooks. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a number of different, um, I guess, outlets that you can access um, audiobooks. Um, Learning Ally, I know, is one. Um, Bookshare is one. And then even just your local library, they have, um, you know, for free access to audiobooks. And for students with dyslexia, we've talked about um, their intelligence um, oftentimes being um, at least average and then some, a lot of times above average. And it doesn't always match their reading levels. So an audiobook allows a student to really unlock um, a book that's of their interest level that their reading level won't allow them oh, that's to. that's so good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We actually have a deal with Audible for school days listeners where they get I think three audiobooks and a 30-day trial so I'll, I'll put that on the post That's and we'll awesome. put that on the website as well mm -hmm. yeah um well one last question that I wanted, wanted to know is um when you're choosing a tutor for somebody that's dyslexic do you need to have somebody who is specializing in learning disabilities or can they just work with whatever program you're working with your child I think that's twofold. I think you should always um, make sure that the person that your student is working with is credible, um, you know, and has the experience and, and as well as the um, credentials. Um, but then I also would be interested in, in understanding what are they already getting maybe at school, um, because what you don't want to do is, you know, start them in a program um, at school and then they're using something separately mm -hmm. privately. So they really should work in, in conjunction, I think, when all possible um, to work with a dyslexia therapist. Um, and then if a dyslexia therapist is, is maybe not available in your area, um, if you're in a smaller, uh, more rural area, um, then I think you know, at, at minimum, a reading specialist um, would, would be the next best thing. But my my thought would be to, to look for a dyslexia therapist first because they have that training and that experience in the area of dyslexia. Mm -hmm. I would 100 percent agree. Um, when I when a student has dyslexia and they are working five times more than the average reader, by the time of the eight hour day is done, they are spent. Um, and they, if if you are at a campus that is providing um, interventions within the school day, then outside reading interventions may not be the best choice or for your child. Um, but if it is something else on top of like maybe math interventions or, you know, chemistry um, tutoring that you might need to have, that might be something that you need to spend your after school time on. Mm -hmm. um, and two, you want to focus on their strengths. They may need to be, you know, playing soccer for three hours instead of going to another hour of reading where they've already spent eight hours in their day doing. Yeah. Exhausting. Yeah. Oh. You know, and I, I just want to add one more thing too. Mm -hmm. I think the reality too is that we have students with um, complex needs um, that would probably benefit from additional beyond the school day, um, especially if they're in a, a group setting at school. Um, there are some that are going to need, above and beyond, you know, what they're able to get, um, you know, in a group setting. Yeah. Um, so I could see the, a group of that group of students also benefiting, um, privately as well. Yeah, 101. Yeah. 101. We did have a question online. Um, we addressed, but I wanted to make sure that she heard this as well. Um, she said, can a child that is dyslexic, Oh wait, no, that wasn't it. There was another one. Um, at what, there's a couple of questions. Yeah. So, uh, at what age can a child be correctly diagnosed? We mentioned that, but go ahead and mention that again. Um, you know, we'd like to, the state asks that our, we recognize that, you know, or at least look for indicators at the end of kinder and mid first grade level. Um, any earlier than that, there's some characteristics, but you really have to caution in the era of developmental issues. Um, in the future, we're going to have be able to have MRI sky, scans, <laughs> you know, at two days, at age two days and be able to determine um, these difficulties. But this is to order to know that we have the educational foundation and that we're not lacking in any other skills. Kinder first grade is ideal because the earlier we provide interventions, um, the better, better that the we're able to close those gaps in sooner. Okay. And then um, somebody is asking also, and uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the full answer, but can you give like a 30 second answer? Can a child be diagnosed with ADHD uh, and also be a dyslexic? Yes. And I think a, a good example of that is when you think of just outside of 
you know, academically, and you think about medical, right? And you're like, well, can I have high blood pressure and can I have um, diabetes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can coexist. The same thing with dyslexia. I can have dyslexia and I can have another comorbid, um, you know, difference like ADHD. Mm -hmm. And we also mentioned that it's actually pretty common Correct. that somebody with ADHD will also be dyslexic or vice versa. So anyway, thank you so much, ladies. Yes. This was a wealth of information. We had a lot of people listening online and thanking you guys for all the information you Good. provided. So this has been wonderful. Um, but we are out of time, unfortunately. Yes. Um, so if you want to know more about learning disabilities in general, more than just dyslexia, but dyscalculia, say it for me. Dyscalculia. D dyscalculia, you're right, uh, and um, other learning disabilities, hang in there with us. We've scheduled Dr. Stephanie Al Oteba, who's professor of teaching and learning at Southern Methodist University and the editor of the Journal of Learning Disabilities, to sit down with us on March 31st. So she'll share all of the information about all the different learning disabilities and how to spot those. Noggin Educational Foundation is the premier sponsor of School Days, so we always want to let you guys know what's going on with Noggin. Our mission is to help close the achievement gap for economically disadvantaged children by improving educational opportunities for students, supporting families, and encouraging excellence and innovation in the classroom. School Days is part of our commitment to support families by providing access to experts who offer information and resources regarding all topics that impact education. If you love this program, please consider donating to Noggin. Your gift will be tax deductible. Head to our website, schooldaysshow.com to give today. And also, we're now taking applications for our free tutoring program. Each student receives 12 in-home private sessions with the teacher. We also offer online tutoring if you're not in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Students must qualify for the free or reduced program uh, lunch program at school. Space is limited. For more information, go to our website, nogginfoundation.org, that's N-O-G-G-I-N, and click on the free tutoring icon. And lastly, if you're like, if you, uh, if you'd like for your child to become one of our kid casters, email me at info at schooldaysshow.com. Next week, I'll sit down with writer and high school English teacher from Arlington ISD, Michelle Ogbadoe and author and adjunct professor, Lakeisha Beckham. They'll talk to us about developing strong writers. So don't forget to share that with your parent friends. And also head to our website, schooldayshow.com for more information about all that we're doing and all the resources that we mentioned here on School Days. And remember, you don't ever have to miss a show. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and pretty much anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Noggin Foundation. That's N-O-G-G-I-N. And last but not least, we always want to end the show by saying that David and I are parenting by grace. We depend on God to give us the wisdom and strength that we need to raise our kids into flourishing adults. And if you would like to know more about that, email us at info at schooldaysshow.com. Have a great week. School Days is sponsored by Noggin Educational Foundation. At Noggin, we provide free educational resources to students from low-income families and support to their parents like the preceding broadcast. School Days is made possible by the generosity of listeners just like you. Please consider donating to Noggin at Noggin, N-O-G-G-I-N, foundation.org.